Good morning, all. Happy Lord's Day. If you don't believe this is the best day of the week, I don't know what to tell you. This is the best day of the week. The early church, uh, in the early church, Sunday was a, that was a work day. That was the first day of the week for most of them as far as working. Um, and so for them, they would finish their work as fast as they could, spend their entire evening together. That's why the early church very often had a meal together because it was dinner time. And they would spend the whole evening together and uh, as much or more time than we spend on Sundays now. Uh, it's almost sad in a way that in America we try to turn Sunday into sort of a second Saturday. You know, that I'll get church over with. That's why early services are so popular. Um, and we're going to try not to go down that road. Well, today we are going to continue on Christology uh, 1 which is module two, session three, and we will pick up where we left off last time, right in the middle of the deity of Christ. But let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll get our Lord's Day started together. Oh, Father, thank you for this day in which we now pause to contemplate Christ, to be with his people, to get just a small little taste of heaven as we uh, open your word, gather together, as we let the other concerns and worries of life go by the wayside for just this day. How we look forward, Lord, to that day when every day will be our, our Lord's day. When the cares and concerns of the world will no longer be all-consuming. When sin will no longer reign on the earth. And when we will not struggle with sin ourselves. Lord, we thank you for this study in Christ. I pray that it increases our worship of our Savior as we know Him more and more and contemplate the truths that help us to bow down before our King of Kings all the more. May we do that with all of our heart this day, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Amen. So we are still in the, uh, the deity of Christ section, and I need to get up to the proper slide. <clears throat> um, we started with the divine nature and now we should be, let's see, names, attributes. Okay, divine works. Just so you know where we've been um, so far. The deity of Christ, we introduced it. Um, we saw that he's the son of God. We looked at the divine attributes that are applied to Christ. And now we want to look at the divine works done by Christ. And this is still, then we'll switch over to um, humanity here. But as much as I hate to, rush through this. There's so much material that I, we want to just try to hit the high points here. So the divine works done by Christ. First of all, he is the creator and the sustainer. Isaiah 44, 24, thus says the Lord, your redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So God alone is the creator now you compare that to Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We could also look at John 1, 3, at Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He is the creator and the sustainer. I... I honestly think that nine out of ten Christians in the United States don't think of Jesus Christ as the creator because they're not taught. But he is the creator. 
And so when you see in Genesis 1-1, based on the progressive revelation of the, of the New Testament, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, plural, created the heavens and the earth. From the New Testament standpoint, we, we can look back and say, well, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all involved in creation. He is the God who forgives sin. This is, of course, a big deal in the Gospels. Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralytic. And what, why did he do it? He didn't do it just for the paralytic's sake. He said that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin. Take up your mat and walk. And so he, has the, he forgives sin. That's a divine work you can't see, but it is one you definitely see the results of. He has the authority to bestow eternal life. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's no other being that can bestow eternal life. Only God can do that. <clears throat> Anybody ever hear uh, that you shouldn't pray to Jesus? You should just pray to the Father because that's what Jesus taught us. That's a classic example of taking one verse of the Bible and building an entire doctrine on it. Well, it's a little hard to get through this because... Jesus receives and answers prayer. Why is this? Because he's God. John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, there's an argument that says, well, Jesus was about to go to his death. And so what he meant was, if you ask me anything in my name before I leave the earth, I will do it. Doesn't say that. He didn't say, hey, tick tock, time's ticking here. If you need to ask for something, you better do it now. He just said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, which is kind of an odd prayer. If you think about it, I don't know that I've ever said, dear Jesus, in your name, I'm asking you this, but that's what he just said. And so we may do that. Other divine works done by Christ. He will raise the dead. John 5, 21, 28 and 29, John 11, 24 and 25. He claims that he will raise the dead. And there's two ways that he proved this. He raised the dead while he was on earth and he raised himself from the dead. And so we're thankful to know that he is the one who is at the helm of raising the dead. He's the final judge of the world. John chapter 5, Jesus said that the Father has appointed him to be the judge of all things. And this is uh, why we understand the great white throne judgment, him who sat on the throne, Revelation 20. It doesn't say it's Christ, but you compare that with John 5. Jesus said all judgment has been given to him. Then we know that the one on the great white throne is the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 10, Acts 17 confirms that he is the final judge of the world. And so this is a great way to share the gospel that with every single human being, Jesus will either be your savior or he will be your judge. But you cannot be neutral about Christ. There are no neutral parties. And that's a good time to quote that Jesus said that if you are not for me, you are what? Against me. He builds and heads the church corporately. He is the head of the church, the, the corporate body of Christ. And when we say corporate, by the way, that just, that's just a word that means the togetherness, the body. Uh, it's, it's from Latin that would be like corpus, a body. He builds and heads the church corporately. Only God can do that. He's the sender of angels. Matthew thirteen forty one. 
The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Did you notice that He is possessive? He will send His angels. Can you think of another time that we saw Jesus as the commander of all the angels? How about Joshua chapter 5 where the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then of course, the divine works done by Christ, we, we think probably first about these, the miracles of healing, raising the dead, miracles over nature, his power over demons. John twenty one twenty five. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I was just reading this morning in I think Luke 6, and um, Jesus was ministering to people, and it said that... Um, I'm reading through the whole New Testament with the uh, Legacy Standard Bible. I'm kind of giving you the test drive here. And it, it just said that everyone who touched Jesus was healed. That's a healing ministry. You know, these so-called healers today go up to Bethel and just say, hey, why don't you heal like a thousand people in a day? How about this? Heal one person in a day because they can't even do that. But Jesus, when he was healing, his power was so extensive that people were just clamoring to touch him and they were being healed. Amazing, phenomenal power. So you put all that together and somebody says, well, Jesus was just a good teacher. Uh, His works don't show that. His works show that, yes, he was a good teacher, but he was divine in all of his works, everything that he did. Not only that, but he made divine claims, If you say Jesus was only a a good teacher, then you must also say that Jesus was a liar because he claimed to be God. He claimed to have absolute authority. He had authority over the law. Matthew 5, 31 and following, a new commandment I give you. Who else gets to add to Bible? Only Jesus because he's God. He had authority over the temple. Matthew 12, 6, authority over the Sabbath. What did he say he is over the Sabbath? He is what? Lord of the Sabbath, King. He has authority over the kingdom, Matthew 16, 19. Absolute authority. At the end of uh, Matthew, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. So he has all authority. He is still under the divine claims made by Christ. He is the supreme object of saving faith. He is the supreme object of our saving faith. This is together with the Father, John 14, 1, John 17, 3, but also alone, John 3, 36. He alone can claim to be the supreme object of saving faith. And, and sometimes people ask questions that really are inane in a way. Well, am I supposed to have faith in the Father or faith in the Son? Yes, you have faith in the Father through the Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's a, it, we don't need to split the Trinity, so to speak. He supersedes all relationships. Matthew ten thirty seven. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I, I've told this story before, but um, this gets lived out in the church. And uh, we had a precious uh, older man in our church a number of years ago. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. Um, But he had been a Mormon for decades. And his wife was a Mormon for decades. And he came to faith in Christ. 
And he said, I, I'm going to the Mormon church every other week to kind of please her uh, if I possibly can, but I'd like to be baptized. And I said, no. You, you cannot play both sides of the fence. But he said, but my wife is going to be so angry. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we just, as lovingly as we could, said, choose Christ or choose your wife. Those, it doesn't mean you're an unloving husband. It doesn't mean you're not going to be kind and sweet and wonderful to her. Well, it was a great day when, uh, after about six months of being mad, um, he said, I submit, I'm going to choose Christ. And we baptized him here, and he chose Christ publicly and never set foot in that, on that Mormon property again and um, continued loving his wife. He meets all needs, spiritual and uh, I think it says oh, spiritual and physical. My notes say spiritual and spiritual. I guess that was a... He meets every need. So uh, John seven thirty seven, John fourteen six. So if Jesus isn't God, these claims that he that he's making um, make him one of two things. And this is the old uh, this is the old argument that Jesus must be a liar or a lunatic or he is Lord. Those are the only three logical options. If he says all these things and knows they're not true, he's a liar. If he says all these things and believes they're true, but they're not true, he's a lunatic. But if he says all these things and they are true, then he must be Lord. Those are the only three logical options. We also see divine worship applied to Christ. We're still under the deity of Christ. Divine worship applied to Christ. Worship is commanded by the Father. Hebrews 1.6. It shows the deity of Christ. Um, God alone is worshipped, but God commands the worship of Jesus, who is God. I, I love the, the, in the book of Isaiah. I think it's chapter 48. I'm not recalling immediately. But God says, I will share my glory with no one. And yet, he says, worship Christ. And so, is, he, is God sharing his glory? No, Jesus is God. Divine worship is offered by the heavenly host. Revelation 5, uh, Philippians 2, the angels worship Christ. Now, this, it's great that in the, in the Bible we have a few instances of men trying to worship angels. And what do the angels always do? Like, get up, don't do that. Or men trying to worship uh, Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. And they're like, no, don't do that. When Jesus, when it says in the New Testament that so-and-so fell down and worshiped, he receives it. That makes him either God or a blasphemer. Of course, the, the leaders of Israel chose the, the blasphemer uh, route because they didn't like what he was doing. So divine worship is, is accepted by Jesus. It's accepted by Jesus from the disciples, Matthew 14, from the Syrophoenician woman of Matthew 15, from women after the resurrection, Matthew 28, from a healed blind man in John 9. And so he receives that worship. And ultimately, all worship, uh, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, genuine worship uh, is not forced. In Philippians, that's the famous, uh, Philippians 2, the famous passage that says, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, <clears throat> what, what is that? Most likely, that's a, a sense of defeat by unbelievers and worship by true believers. That's a whole other issue. But at some point, at the end of history, there will not be a single being that does not acknowledge, if I could use a double negative, that Jesus is Lord. 
<clears throat> and we can understand this. Even the demons acknowledge that he is Lord. And the book of James says, uh, you believe in God? Great. Well, even the demons believe that. So that's not a, when somebody says to you, well, I believe in God, that's not a salvific statement um, whatsoever. So there is the, the deity of Christ. And I think in our circles, that's something we're more familiar with and maybe more comfortable with. And we, we default to that. And that's great. Um, you cannot, I, I want to be really clear about this. You cannot be a Christian and deny the deity of Christ. You can't. Because if you deny the deity of Christ, then his sacrifice on the cross um, is, is insufficient. And all that he said, it means you don't believe he says who he is, um, what he says about himself. So we're, I think we're kind of comfortable in that realm. Where we spend a little less time is on the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ. And, and before we get into this, I want to just make a couple of comments just kind of off it, out of my heart. The humanity of Christ is often latched onto with an overemphasis in charismatic circles. And I'll tell you why. This is the whole emphasis um, with the, the Bethel uh, cult. And it is a cult. With the Bethel cult, the emphasis is you can do everything Jesus did. You can perform all those miracles. You can have all the wealth in the world, which is weird because Jesus was very poor on earth. Um, but you can do all those things because all the miracles of Jesus were done solely in his humanity through the power of the Holy Spirit, that there was no deity involved. And in essence, they deny the deity of Christ and they emphasize the humanity to essentially turn us into Mormons to say, you can become exactly like God and do everything that he does. So the humanity of Christ whether you're aware of this or not, this has been a major, major debate for 20 centuries in the church, especially at the beginning of the church age, which I'll uh, go into in just a little bit here. But we need to understand the humanity of Christ because we're, we're hitting up against a wall where it becomes very difficult to understand. So we're not trying to put uh, the deity and the humanity of Christ together yet. We're just switching over to humanity for now. Then we'll talk about uh, the, and there's not even a good word. I mean, I say mix, then we're, I'm going to be struck by lightning. There is not a good word to describe the deity and humanity of Christ in one person, but we'll do our best. So let's just talk about the humanity of Christ. This is not God in a body. This is not God in a man. This is, Jesus is God as a man. And that is an important distinction because Jesus didn't inhabit the body of another human being. Jesus didn't, um, didn't appear uh, to be sort of like a man. He came as a man. And this is very, very important because it has implications for his sacrifice on the cross as being an exact uh, representation, an exact substitute. Here's some descriptions of the incarnation of Christ. When I was a little kid, I thought that incarnation was the brand of milk. And I didn't understand. I, so to this day, I cannot say the word incarnation without picturing a little red thing of milk. Um, incarnation is just from Latin, a Latin word that means in the body, in the flesh. Uh, if you've ever ordered carne asada, Right? There it is. It's the body. It's the flesh. The incarnation of Christ is him coming in the flesh. And that's what he's called. John 1.14, the word became flesh. 
He came down from heaven. John 3.13, he said that about himself. By the way, that was, that was his whole logic for when people were questioning, well, how do you know God? His logic was very simple because I was just there. I just came from him. So everything I'm telling you, he just told me. John 3.17, he's sent into the world. Romans 1.3, Galatians 4.4, 4, he was born. He had a real birth. And some have said that, uh, that the birth of Jesus was painless because Mary is, is, the, is the mother of, of Jesus. Scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. He was born. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. Romans 8, 3. Now, this is important. He did not come as sinful flesh. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. What does this mean? It means that uh, out of 8 billion people on planet Earth today, all 8 billion are sinners. And if Jesus were walking the earth, you wouldn't know unless you got to know him that he wasn't one of them. He looked just like us. He was a carpenter. Question number 3,000 I'm going to ask Jesus on earth is, did you ever hurt yourself with your tools? Because he came in the likeness of human flesh. I have more injury from tool, injuries from tools than I care to think about. And I always wondered, did, did his deity keep him from hitting his thumb with a hammer? Or certainly if he did, he had perfect thoughts at that moment. You know, he thanked his father for the, the pain receptors that let him know. I don't know. But in other words, when he was uh, remodeling a room in somebody's house with his dad, he was just like one of us. He's in the likeness of sinful flesh. Love the fact, by the way, that the creator of all things came to earth and was a carpenter. Love that. He partook of flesh and blood. Hebrews 2, 14. In other words, he was real. He wasn't some sort of apparition. He wasn't ghostly. He wasn't uh, different from us. And he was manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Those are just descriptions of the incarnation. The, the New Testament is is absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is a man. We don't say was a man. He is a man. He is in heaven now as he was on earth in his perfected, glorified body. Then we go on to um, the self-humbling of God. This is a big issue here, but we'll, we'll kind of take a, a short uh, view of it here, a short treatment. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Speaking of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. A couple of, t- a couple of things here. He had the form of God. What does that mean? He had the form of God because he is God. That, that's a word that means that he had the exact representation. And the, the verse we uh, read in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Not a copy, he's the exact imprint. Now this is where we get into the debate. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? This is called the doctrine of the kenosis, after the, the Greek word here for emptying himself a heretical position is to say that he divested himself of the attributes of God for a time and became like men in all respects that he was now not fully God. And they would say that, well, that, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, he wasn't equal to God. No, what, he, what the text means by counting equality with God 
a thing to be grasped is that he, as John 17 says, he gave up all of the glory that he was experiencing in heaven. He came out of glory to the, the degradation of the earth. But what does it empty himself? What does that mean? It means he nullified his position. That he set aside the manifestation of his glory. He took the form of a servant. But he didn't divest himself of deity. He didn't divest himself of the attributes of deity. He concealed his glory, not his identity. Jesus never uh, said, no, I'm not the son of God. He never said, I'm not God. He always claimed to be God. He always claimed to be the son of God. But he did conceal his glory. Now, the, the big question here is, like we know from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus, the human being, learned that he grew in stature and in knowledge. How does that work? A lot of ink has been spilled over that. Um, we're not told. What we do know, for example, when the Son of God says that, um, that, that no one knows the day or time of the, end of, of the end of all things, when the Son of Man is going to come, and not even the Son of Man, I don't even know. Wait a minute. How can it be omniscient, all-knowing God and not know that particular fact? I don't know, and I think anybody who says they have an answer um, is guessing. But what we do know is that he is God and fully human and developed as a human being. He wasn't born 30 years old. He was born as a baby, and he developed. Some people say, well, Jesus didn't cry. Well, I hope he did. That's how his mother knew he was hungry. So he humbled himself, he emptied himself, not of deity, not of the attributes of deity. He concealed his glory. And, and one time on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17 records this, for just a moment, he appeared in all of his glory and his face shining like the sun. Just a little glimpse. How about this, of the humanity of Christ, the virgin birth? The virgin birth is foretold in Isaiah 7, 14. It's explicitly affirmed in the Gospels, Matthew 1, Luke 1. What is the virgin birth? I have a definition here. The miraculous act whereby Jesus Christ was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary with the result that the second person of the triune God was joined eternally to a real human body and nature. I'll read that one more time. It is that miraculous act whereby Jesus Christ was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary with the result that the second person of the triune God was joined eternally to a real human body and nature. Somebody might say, well, I just have trouble believing that. Well, let's look at the evidence for the humanity of Christ. He had a human birth. The conception was miraculous, but there was a normal pregnancy and birth. There's no place in Scripture that says that Mary experienced anything other than a normal uh, pregnancy and the birth of her son. He had human growth and development. Luke chapter 2, verses 40 and 52. He had human ancestry. We have two genealogies, Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Now, this is a whole separate issue. I take the position that the Luke 3 genealogy is actually the genealogy of Mary. Um, and that show, Matthew 1, the genealogy of, of Joseph, his adopted father, so to speak, genealogy in Luke, the, the genealogy of Mary, even though they say it's the gene, genealogy of Joseph, why would that be the case? Because you never did a genealogy of a woman. You just didn't do that. And so um, in either case, 
doesn't matter which position you take, Jesus has human ancestry. And in fact, we're told in advance in the whole Old Testament that he will, that he will be, um, first of all, a son of Eve. We know that. Then he'll be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David. And both Joseph, his adopted father, which would give him legal status um, uh, as, as a descendant of David, and Mary, his, where his DNA comes from, both of them are traced to two different sons of David. So you, you get it both ways. So when Jesus is said to be the son of David, it's a, it's a double whammy. He is human in appearance. In fact, the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 53, says that there was nothing particularly handsome about him. That he was of no uh, special appearance. That he looked just like us. He had human experiences. Hebrews chapter 4 is so comforting to us that we have a high priest who is sympathetic because he's experienced everything we have save one thing, and that is sin. He has experienced the consequences of sin, our sin, not his own. Other evidence of his humanity. He has a human relationship to God. He did experience dependence on the Holy Spirit. There's a certain amount of mystery to this because how is it that God depends on the Holy Spirit? Well, we're not told exactly, but here's the evidence we have. He was given the Spirit, John 1. He was given the baptism of the Spirit, Luke 3. And I think uh, uh, our best view of that is that that was the commissioning of Christ for the work of the ministry. But as a human being, did Jesus rely on the Spirit of God? Absolutely. Now, Jesus um, likely had the Spirit prior to baptism, but at his baptism, he was given that special empowering. Why, why would this be important? What happened immediately after the baptism of Christ? He went out into the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days, and then he faced down Satan in a way that all of us would have folded in two seconds. His temptation shows he has a human relationship to God. Now, here's where I'll take a little digression on the temptation of Christ just for a minute. <clears throat> was the temptation real? Absolutely. It was real. What Was it agonizing for Christ. Absolutely. We go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So was it real? Absolutely. Was there a single chance that Jesus would fail? No. In his humanity, the temptation was absolutely real. We would have folded in a second. In his deity, there's not a single chance he would have failed because God cannot be tempted. God cannot sin. And so, um, what's the difference between us and Jesus? I think John MacArthur says it best. The difference between us and Jesus is that when we reach a certain point, we give in. And so, the temptation of Jesus was much more agonizing because you know how it is. When you're resisting temptation, the longer you resist, the longer you resist, it's harder. And it's just agonizing. He never stopped resisting. We generally just sin and then ask for forgiveness and try to do better next time. Matthew 12, 28 speaks of his work being by the Spirit. So he's dependent on the Holy Spirit. He has a, a human relationship to God. Now, how about this one? 
He had an exemplary prayer life. Exemplary prayer life. And I don't see that that's on the slide there. I can't see it. Those words are so small. Um, By the Spirit, is there? Oh, there it is. Okay, that needs to be a slide. Um, He had an exemplary prayer life. Now think about this for a moment. Think about the fact that in John 17, Jesus said that he was... uh, asked the Lord, his Father, to return to him the glory he had before the foundation of the world. What is prayer? Prayer is speaking to God from a distance by faith. I I don't know if when we're in heaven face-to-face with God, I don't know if we would technically label that prayer. Now we're just speaking face-to-face with him. But imagine that the Lord Jesus now on earth prays from a distance to his heavenly father with whom he's been joined for all of eternity. And yet his prayer life was exemplary. He prayed before decisions. Luke chapter 6 speaks of him praying before he chose the 12. Did he pray about who to choose? No, he's sovereign God. He already knew he was going to choose. Imagine that. He knew the decision. He knew the right thing to do. And yet he prayed before it anyway. That's a great example. He prayed before miracles. One of my favorite prayers of Jesus, the one we have listed here, John 11, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. If you look at that prayer, uh, it it wasn't, okay, God, we can do this. We're going to get pumped up here and I'm really praying that you help me because we're about to say Lazarus come forth here and it'd be really embarrassing if nothing happened. He just prays in confidence. He already knows what's going to happen. He simply says, Uh, essentially let everyone see your glory through this. And so he prays before a miracle. He prayed in public. He prayed in private. He prayed short prayers. He prayed long prayers. Sometimes he prayed for a moment. Sometimes he prayed all night. He taught his disciples to pray. I I think it's a little bit unfortunate that um, the prayer that he taught his disciples in Matthew 6 has been labeled the Lord's Prayer. That's not a very good prayer. There's a couple of better labels. We could call it the disciples' prayer because it's the prayer he taught his people to pray. And maybe an even better prayer, I would like to call it the kingdom citizen prayer. This is how kingdom citizens pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. What's the next thing he says? Your kingdom come. By the way, those who say uh, that the kingdom of Christ is happening on earth right now, that prayer becomes irrelevant, right? Right? It's not not the case. He taught his disciples to pray. And then, of course, this is still under the evidence of humanity, the title he used for himself some 80 times or so, the Son of Man. And we said before that was from uh, Daniel chapter 7. Called himself the Son of Man, Son of, of, of Humans. So how do we put these two together? I can give you the short answer, which is we have no clue whatsoever but there is a challenge and we could talk about it just for a moment how do we explain that jesus is fully god and fully human i don't think we can give an explanation that will satisfy everyone there's a a lot of mystery to this there's a lot of um unexplainable elements and you you get into the realm of um of making guesses really, really fast. And I always get really nervous when people begin to quote Puritans and quote reformers as if they are inspired. 
They wrote a lot. John Owen, uh, the, the thing about John Owen, the, the Puritan, for example, is why say in 20 words what you can say in 20,000? That's what John Owen was about. But they're not inspired. And so when you begin getting into the realm of speculation, you just have to say, this is speculation. It might be this, it might be that. So you can't really give an explanation that will satisfy everyone. But the nature of Christ has been expressed in the terms of nature and person. And I think those are two very useful uh, thoughts. Nature, a complex of attributes when taken together, identify a particular kind of thing. So you have a, a list of attributes and that's the nature of this thing. And then person, a substantive self-conscious entity characterized by attributes. In other words, this person has a type of nature. So who or what is Jesus? How do we describe him? The easiest way to describe Jesus, I think that we could have the most agreement, is that he is one person with two natures. He's one person with two natures. Those natures are divine and human. Now, you have to understand, this was a massive source of debate in the early church history, and I'll give you a little list here um, in a moment just for your own interest. God the Son came down, He took on human attributes in addition to his divine attributes. There was no sense of a trade-in except for the temporary trading his glory for the degradation of humanity. But he didn't trade his attributes in. He didn't trade his deity in at all. There's a term that theologians use for this. It's often called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. It's from the Greek word hypostasis. And this speaks of his substantial nature, his personhood, his essence, and it basically comes from Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, hypostasis, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So what does it mean? It means that, that Jesus Christ has a substantial nature, which is God, a substantial nature, which is human, but he is one person. He's one person. It is not that the Son of God united with a human person. He became a human person. Not God in a man, it's God as a man. Now, you might think, ah, we, we sort of know this already in the, in the 21st century. And it's always a danger to say that we've gotten down some area of, of theology. Uh, I would have thought 12 months ago that in reform circles and fairly conservative circles and even in broader evangelical circles that we had gotten down, so to speak, the theology of the church. And we found that to not be the case. That when the church was presented with the opportunity to shut down for a year, many took it and said, oh yeah, that's okay. What is that? That's a problem with not having an adequate ecclesiology. So there are a ton of errors identified um, with this doctrine and this was a big deal. You don't have to remember all this. I, I Maybe read it once. But I just want to let you know why this was such a big deal. This was dealt with at the councils of Ephesus in 431, the council of Chalcedon, 451, the council of Constantinople in 381. And I just want to illustrate how touchy this, this issue has been. You had the Ebionites. They just flat out denied the deity of Christ. And the Ebionites today, we'd call them Mormons. They, they'd be different. 
Um, you had the Arians. They denied the complete deity of Christ. In other words, um, the Arians said that Jesus became like a God, or they would call him a God, and that he uh, achieved this through a process. What do we call Arians today? We call them Jehovah's Witnesses. Then there were the Docetists. That Jesus appeared to be human, but just came in a human manifestation of some kind. That he was actually sort of like a, like a superman. That he looked normal, but he was the man of steel and he could walk through buildings and things like that. And, and, but really was alien. No, Jesus was human. What did he call Mary? Mom. That's what he called her. Sometimes he called her woman, but that was a whole different issue, a uh, different time. Then there were the Apollinarians. The Apollinarians denied the complete humanity of Christ. They said that he, he had a human body, but a divine soul. There was still a separation. It was still essentially uh, Jesus inhabiting a body rather than becoming human. <clears throat> then you had the Eutychians. The Eutychianism, uh, named after a guy named Eutyches, uh, said that humanity and deity are united and fused into a third thing that's not completely divine and not completely human. So that there's this sort of alien feature uh, that the Eutychians would have gone with. And then there were the Nestorians. The Nestorians say that it was a divine person united with a human nature, two persons in one existence. And they would say that at certain times when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was his human nature. When he was walking on water, that was his divine nature. Small problem with that. What was walking on the water? His body, right? You can't set those aside. So that's just to show you, you're, you know, you're not going to get home tonight and say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not an Apollinarian or a Nestorian in a great sense, aren't we thankful to have the, the clear word of, of the scriptures? How are you to understand the Son of God? He is one person with two natures. What does that make him? That makes him the perfect bridge. Because you may pray to Jesus as an unbeliever, an unbeliever, and say you are a human being who took my penalty for sin, would you please go to your father and ask for forgiveness on my behalf? And so Jesus, with his human nature, grasps humanity, and with his divine nature, he is in the very counsel of God, and he is then, therefore, able to unite humanity with God. He is the ultimate bridge. If any of you have ever been through um, a study that... Uh, the the uh, navigators put out Colossians two seven. We've done that in our church. Unfortunately, they've watered it down so much it's not that great anymore. But they uh, use a classic way to share the gospel called the bridge illustration. And the bridge illustration, you basically memorize a few verses, um, and there's this. You draw this picture of a little chasm, and you talk about the sinfulness of man over here on oh, the, your side, over here on this side, and the holiness of God on this side. And the thing that you draw in the middle then as the bridge is you draw the cross. And that is true, and that's a great illustration. And this would be harder to draw, but slightly more accurately, the bridge ought to be Christ. The cross is the means by which Christ is the bridge, but Christ is the bridge. 
Uh, the cross is lost to history. I mean, the, the Catholic religion was selling so many pieces of the cross, you could have uh, built Noah's Ark with if they were all true. But the cross isn't the bridge. That's, that's part of the bridge, but Christ is the bridge. So it's very, very important that in your worship of Christ, oh yes, he is our King of Kings. He is our Lord of Lords. We bow before him as God. But he's also called himself the eldest among many brothers. It's important to remember that when you look up to Christ, you may grasp his hand as a fellow human being and it is his hand that pulls you out of your sin and into the presence of God. So, We thank the Lord for his humanity. We thank the Lord for his deity. What absolute wisdom and genius. Who would have ever thought of that? How will holy God reach down to sinful man without degrading himself and without becoming sinful, without without tainting himself with sin? Well, he comes as a man who is sinless. The two natures joined in one person. So I hope that the humanity of Christ um, gives us even more reason to worship him. Now, by the way, a little side note. Some have said, well, do I worship the deity of Christ or do I worship the humanity of Christ? How many persons is he? One, worship Christ, who he is today. And when you meet him in heaven, I don't know how to wrap my mind around this. He's your height. He's as big as you. And yet... He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I I can't wrap my mind around that. You will embrace the Son of God as a man. Amazing thought. We have three minutes. Does anybody have any questions? Once again, I've told you everything I know. So, what questions do you have about the hypostatic union, nature of Christ, humanity, deity? Debbie. Oh, is that Hebrews 2.14? Or is that 5? Okay, that's a great question. The question is, um, in Hebrews chapter 5, it says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. There are two senses of learning when we think about the humanity of Christ. Luke chapter 2 speaks of him growing in stature. Did Jesus, as a human being, gain in knowledge? Well, he must have. He must have. The moment he began speaking as a one-year-old, he probably wasn't uh, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 7 at that point. He was learning, albeit at a pretty phenomenal rate, I would guess, because by the time he's 12, he's he's debating with the teachers in the temple. So the learning in the sense of gaining knowledge. The other sense in which Jesus learned, though, um, this is so important, it's the sense of having experienced that Jesus, as a human being, doesn't just say, I know what you're going through because I'm God and I know all things. He can say, according to Hebrews 4, I know what you're going through because I have been through it. And so he learned in terms of he experienced all. And that's the comfort that we have. He's been tempted in all ways as we are. Uh, the difference between us and him is he resists temptation perfectly and we don't. But we take comfort in that. So that's, it speaks of him experiencing um, experiencing suffering that he he suffered uh, in reality it wasn't theory it wasn't something he just knew good question 
What other questions? This is like an ordination exam every week with you guys. Yeah, Teresa. You know, um, the pattern throughout Scripture is that the that God is most manifest in His Son. That's the that's the greatest manifestation. That's the uh, that's the cool thing about um, uh, <clears throat> Hebrews one. That in the former days He spoke to us through the prophets. We have words. Well, I don't have my Bible in here. It's in my office. We have words which He says is the second best manifestation of God. But the best manifestation in these latter days, he spoke to us through Christ himself. So throughout scripture, and I think we saw this with the study of the angel of the Lord, um, the physical human manifestation of God is always the second person of the Trinity. Um, but it's interesting to note that the book of Revelation, for example, and this is represented in the tabernacle and in the temple uh, symbolically with the lampstands, but the book of Revelation pictures the Holy Spirit as flames of fire, and what, what did we see on the day of Pentecost over the heads of the apostles? Wasn't the 120, by the way, it was just the apostles. Um, we saw flames of fire representing the Holy Spirit. Um, what about God the Father? You read Ezekiel chapter one, read Isaiah six, uh, read uh, Revelation four and five, and you see God the Father manifested in glory, but God is spirit. He is invisible. So you'll never meet a human being type person that says, hi, I'm the Holy Spirit. And I know for us, that's, that almost can feel disappointing. That's why we have Christ. That's why we are Christians. We are connected to God through Christ. And we won't be disappointed um, whatsoever. Um, the Spirit of God, if you think about this, the Spirit of God has indwelt you. And we sort of are aware of that. I don't know about you, I enjoy praying to the Holy Spirit, mostly when I want to do something I shouldn't do. That's when I want to speak to the Holy Spirit because I, I sense that that's, um, that's where I need to go. But there will be a day when the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Teresa, is so powerful and real and perfected that um, it's not that we need to see the Spirit, He's within us. And that will be manifested every second of every day. Yeah, good question. Nate. I don't know. But here, here the, let's, let's, let's make a list of facts we do know. He has always been the son of God. Jesus did not become the son. Uh, Romans chapter one is really clear about this, but that, that's been a prevailing position um, for years that Jesus became the son of God at his birth. That's not what scripture says. He has always been the son. And I mean, actually the whole world knows this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? You can't give something that didn't exist prior to that. So he has always been the son of God. We also know that God not only created all things, he created the space in which they exist. Um, he created, uh, I know it's weird to think about there was a time where space didn't exist, but you have to have a space in order to put material. So at that point, we kind of hit the realm of uh, Jesus said that he was in glory with his father before the foundation of the world. 
So I would tend to think we're entering into a realm that's kind of none of our business. What we do know is that when Christ came um, to the earth, that now he is human. And um, it's interesting to me. I can't prove this, but I, I believe very, very clearly in my mind that when Adam opened his eyes for the first time, because 2 Corinthians 4 makes an allusion to it, that when Adam opened his eyes for the first time, the first thing he saw was the face of Christ. Why wouldn't he? I mean, Genesis says that, that God walked in the garden with, uh, w- with Adam and Eve. It doesn't mean that there was some breeze and, that, oh, hey, look, there's God. No, he was walking with them. So was he uh, visible as a human? I don't know. I, I tend to think maybe not, because what would the purpose of it be? There, there would be no purpose. His appearing as a human is for our sake. Um, he's in perfect fellowship with God the Father, perfect fellowship and love with God the Spirit, um, and yet he was always the Son. So I, I think we're thinking in terms of, of a human manifestation that we need that God the Father, God the Spirit didn't ever need. They have no needs. So, like I said, I've already told you everything I know, so we're just guessing at this point. But it's great to think about our Savior. Let's do one more question, maybe. Yeah, Leon. Sorry, say that again. Oh, yeah. Uh, Thoughts on the word carpenter. Well, um, first of all, the way we think of a carpenter might be a little bit different than what what they actually did. Uh, I don't... since, and I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't done an extensive study on this, so I'll tell you what I know. I, I don't sense that there's some sort of magical being, uh, magical meaning behind that. I do think it's neat that the creator of all things came to create. Um, but the, uh, the, the word carpenter, it doesn't mean necessarily just the guy who comes and hangs a door or uh, helps you fix a, you know, a floorboard that's, that's not working right and things like that. Um, it could be as extensive as being a general contractor. Um, building whole, ha- whole houses or boats, ships. Um, and so there's, there's some evidence that that would be the case, that there was more of a uh, kind of knew a little bit of everything like a contractor might. Um, but that's, uh, I know you've done some study on that. I'd love to, love to see what you have. I, I think the most important thing about a carpenter is that um, uh, being a carpenter back in that day was sort of like... Um, being the, the garbage man today, it was viewed pretty low on the social status. And uh, even the people in Nazareth said, hey, isn't that the carpenter's kid? You know, isn't, isn't he lowly? I don't know if you're aware of this. In our culture today, musicians are viewed as celebrities. Uh, 300 years ago, musicians were like, they weren't even allowed in with the regular people. Like they were viewed as the lowest of the low of society. And today, you see, a, you know, you see a, a general contractor driving a Lexus, and you go, man, that's not a bad way. That's not what they did. They, they were the low. They were on the low end of the, of the social status. So to me, the, the, one of the great things is that it shows how humble Jesus is. He didn't come to be the son of a king. He didn't come as a prince. He came as a carpenter's kid. You know? And he would have, uh, as soon as he's old enough to hold a hammer, Joseph would have been saying, congratulations, you have a job. Get to the shop. Because we got a family business to run. Great question. Well, I hope you will continue um, just thinking on Christ and reading uh, all you can. And um, our best source for understanding the nature of Christ is simply to read the Gospels and to see uh, how he behaves there. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, thank you for this time we've had. Thank you for all who are here. 
how great it is to speak of your son and how quickly we run out of information. I wonder what it would have been like to see him in all of his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. I wonder what it would have been like to see him as John saw him in Revelation 1 in all of his glory falling down before him in fear. I wonder what it would have been like to be Isaiah seeing the glory of the Son of God in the very throne room of heaven And yet we will not wonder for long. And so while we worship by faith today, we look forward to the day when our faith is made into sight and we see our Savior face to face. May we be worthy of that day in our obedience to him in the meantime. We pray in Christ's name, amen.